So here we are in the midst of a holiday season. Of course, this weekend we're celebrating Easter. Friday was Good Friday. And last week was 328 day, of course. It was 328, the 28th day of March. And that's when I remember the Patriots victory over Atlanta in the Super Bowl. This was the score late in the third quarter, and it just goes to show that it's never too late and that uh, the end of the story hasn't been written yet, so it's always too soon to lose hope. It was also Palm Sunday, I recognize, and that's maybe just a little bit more important, but I wanted to start with that because it's such a relevant theme to what we're talking about and celebrating this week. You may remember where you were if you're uh, in New England when this game happened. This is uh, me and my son, and there's Andre over there. There were a couple of us together, and this is us, hopeful watching the Patriots come back from this incredible deficit on their way to a win. Now, I had hope at that time in part because I had seen so many incredible endings in the past. Just a couple of years ago, uh, before that, in Super Bowl 49, we saw Malcolm Butler intercept Russell Wilson to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat in Super Bowl 49. So we had some sense that a turnaround was possible. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We've been in this series called King and Cross, looking at the gospel of Mark and seeing how Jesus is the king who secures victory through the cross. Yes, he's a king. He, was the, he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. He is God in the flesh, fully man and fully God. And he revealed himself as that, as he walked in on the earth and did his ministry and taught, but he secured his kingdom through a very unexpected process where he went to the cross. That's not how the people were expecting. That's not what they were looking for in a Messiah, but he is the king who secures his victory through the cross. And this is the way the Apostle Paul would describe it when he's describing the, the core elements of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57, it says, But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want you to be able to see here in as we celebrate the resurrection this year, is that there is always hope. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. There is always hope. And I recognize that many of you probably listening and watching are facing things that are a lot more serious, a lot more challenging, a lot more devastating than your team being behind in a game. I know that there are people who are facing severe financial, relational, health challenges. And when you're in the midst of some of those situations, it can be hard to maintain hope. Because if you just draw a line from the way things have been going out into the future to what you expect, there's not a lot of, there might not be a lot of things that are giving you hope. You might not see a light at the end of the tunnel. But Easter, the story of the Jesus' resurrection, reminds us that there is always hope. 
And the reason that there's hope is that the end of the story hasn't been written yet. And what we're going to see as we look at the Gospel of Mark around these events of Holy Week leading from Palm Sunday into and through Easter is that there were many things, almost everything along the way that were devastatingly disappointing, discouraging, and just would not do anything to give someone hope. But at the end, the end of the story is what matters. It doesn't matter what the score is in the third quarter. It doesn't matter what's going on in the middle of the book. The question is, how does the story end? And the end of the story for Jesus and for the disciples during that week and towards the end of the week when everything was going so poorly, the end of the story hadn't been written yet. And for you, no matter what you're facing and going through right now, there's still more of your story ahead. And today's challenge is going to be to let Jesus write the rest of your story. So let's look at it together. The resurrection passage in the Gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went out to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you that we are able to look back with confidence on the eyewitness accounts of your resurrection. I pray, Lord, that you would help each person who is listening and watching to be able to grasp hold of the hope that the resurrection story provides that the end of the story hasn't been written yet, that we can join our story to yours and ours can be a story that moves from despair to hope, from worry to confidence, from anxiety to peace. And Lord, I pray that for myself. I pray that for everyone who's watching and listening we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we look at it together, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead. We have the confidence of the eyewitness testimony of over 500 people who saw him alive after he was dead and buried. So that gives us a lot of hope. And it also kind of uh, 
prepares us for that happy ending. But it's good to remember that as the disciples went through this, they did not know how things were going to end up. They start the week with everyone welcoming Jesus as a conquering king into the city of Jerusalem. But as the week goes on, the things that they experience do not give them hope because the end of the story hadn't been written yet and things were going downhill. So I just want to kind of put us back into the experience of Jesus and the disciples when they were going through this process because there were multiple things that were happening that were very discouraging that perhaps you can relate to. The first thing that I want to point out is that his friends let him down. Whenever you're going through something that's difficult, you want to know that you've got people that care about you, people that love you, that are surrounding you and going to support you, going to just be there for you. And what Jesus experienced over that week was pretty much the exact opposite of that. In Mark 14.10, it talks about Judas Iscariot. Remember, he's one of the disciples, one of the twelve he went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. Of course, we know Judas' story, but perhaps it's good just to kind of put yourself back in the position of Jesus. Jesus, who has selected all 12 of these men. Jesus, who has poured his life into them over the course of multiple years. And here we have Judas going to his enemies going to Jesus' enemies in order to arrange to betray Jesus to them. And of course, we know that he did that with a kiss. He identified Jesus with a kiss. uh, And then afterwards, Jesus was arrested. But really, it didn't end with just Judas, because when Jesus was arrested, when the the soldiers showed up, uh, they were leaving him to fend for himself. And in fact, Jesus knew that this was going to happen. In Mark 14, 27, he told them, talking to his disciples, to his closest friends, all of you will desert me for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that is exactly what happened. And Mark records it in chapter 14, verse 50. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. As the noose was closing in, as the soldiers were showing up, the disciples fled. They went and took care of themselves. They got as far away from there as possible. So, as the week is coming to a close, Jesus' friends are deserting him. One of his closest friends has betrayed him. But the end of the story hasn't been written yet. It's actually going to get worse because we see uh, there are a whole list of different authorities that abused him. And here's really the most tragic thing about this, is that when God gives people authority, when you have power or position or wealth or whatever leverage over someone, the reason that God shares his authority with others is so that they can use that authority for the benefit of those under that authority. And that's why when we experience abuse or misuse from people who are in positions of authority, it is so painful and so challenging and so difficult. And I know 
Probably many of you have experienced something like this, where somebody who had power over you, who should have used it to your benefit, should have used it to protect you, should have used it to watch out for you, ends up using that power against you. And that's exactly what we see happening to Jesus. After he's arrested, he's taken to a trial before the chief priests, the leading religious leaders, and the Sanhedrin, which was a religious and civil body that had power and authority in Israel. So in Mark 14, 55, the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. They were conspiring against him, looking for some pretext to put him to death. And he was innocent. They didn't find any because he was innocent. And then people were coming before this court and were testifying falsely. In Mark 14, 56, it says, many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't, didn't agree. They couldn't find two witnesses who could say the same thing. They were testifying falsely. They were lying about him. Then we see that while he's on the cross, they are using his words against him to mock him. In Mark 15, 29, it says, ha, Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. This was a part of Jesus' teaching, part of his preparing and showing that he knew what was going to happen and was foreshadowing the cross and resurrection. But people are taking his words and twisting them and using them against him. And then back in the courtroom, as the trial is wrapping up, as they are getting ready to hand Jesus over to the authorities to be crucified, it says, then some of them, who are the some of them here? These are the people that are in authority. These are the people who are supposed to be watching out for him, people who are supposed to be committed to justice. Some of them began to spit at him and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. One of the things that tells you the most about a person's character is how they treat people who are under their authority, people who can't fight back, who don't have power or position. And here we see the people who should have been watching out for Jesus absolutely abusing and mistreating him. And then these are his own people. These are, these are fellow Israelites then as he's turned over to the Romans, it goes from bad to worse. I'll just read this passage to you about how he was treated once he was turned over to the Romans. This is Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. They saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, and they led him away to be crucified." So here 
You see his friends betray him. The people in authority abuse him. It goes from bad to worse as he's handed over from fellow Israelites to the Romans. But in the midst of this, the end of the story hasn't been written yet. In fact, it's going to get worse. Because in the midst of all this, perhaps the most challenging thing is that from all appearances, God seemingly abandoned him. And that's probably one of the most challenging things that we can face. If you know that there's a God who loves you, who cares for you, who sent his son to die for you, who has your best interests at heart, and then you look around at your circumstances and the way things are going, and it just doesn't seem to line up with that. And you begin to wonder, are my prayers bouncing off the ceiling? Are, is there really a God out there who loves me and cares for me? If that were the case, wouldn't my experience be different? And that's exactly what you see in Jesus' life as well, because from an outsider looking in, it seemed like God abandoned him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's praying, before he is arrested, it says in Mark 14, 36, his prayer went like this, Abba, Father. He's, he's speaking very intimately to God as his dad. He cried out, everything is possible for you. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're in control. I know that you can work things out in ways that are so creative. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. He was looking towards the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew the pain, suffering, and uh, experience that was ahead of him. And so he is begging his dad, please take this cup of suffering away from me. He goes on to surrender his will. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And while he is praying, while he is anticipating what is coming on the cross, it says in Mark 14, 34, he told them, talking to his disciples, as he was asking them to pray and to keep watch with him, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Some of you have experienced this kind of soul-crushing grief and sorrow. And maybe in some form or fashion, you're facing that right now. It's always encouraging to me to remember that the God in heaven sent his son lived among us, experienced all the things that we go through in this life. There's no suffering, there's no sorrow, there's no challenge, there's no difficulty, there's no pain that God cannot relate to because he was put himself willingly through those paces with us. Here, Jesus is saying, I've got soul-crushing grief that I'm dealing with right now as he anticipates the cross. And then as he is on the cross, in Mark 15, 34, it says at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Now, there's an element of hope in this because 
in addition to the words that he's saying, he's actually quoting the first line of Psalm 22. So I think that he is, yes, uh, experiencing that sense of rejection, but knowing that the end of the story hasn't been written yet and pointing the people who were there watching this whole experience to Psalm 21, just like we in some cases, refer to songs by the first line of the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is the title of the song that starts, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In the same way, you might refer to Psalm 22 in this way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the way the psalm starts. And it details a person who is going through experiences very similar, foreshadowing, prophesying, what Jesus would go through. But the end of the story in Psalm 22 shows the redemption, the the rescue that God is going to affect. And so I think even in the midst of this intense suffering, he is pointing people to the fact that the end of the story hasn't been written yet. And here's where we make the turn. The end of the story, but God rescued him. There is a but, a contrast, a pivot point in this story. And there can be a pivot point in your story as well. But God rescued him. You see, Jesus was able to foreshadow, to anticipate, to prophesy what was going to happen to him because he knew. He was able to, even from the cross, point people to a different ending than what could be expected, an ending that was different from the trajectory that it seemed like everything was moving on. Back, remember, at that transition point when Jesus began to explain who he was and what was going to happen to him in Mark 8:31, he says, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, again referring to himself, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. And then there's this transition. But, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. He said, all of these things are going to be happening and it's going to seem like you're going in a certain direction and things are going completely off track. But really in the midst of this, God is at work and there's going to be this pivot point, this transact, this uh, transition. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. And then in that passage that we looked at about the resurrection, we see that pivot point. But beginning back in chapter 8, the, all the way through chapter 16, his disciples, his friends just didn't understand. They weren't anticipating that. They were going to the tomb in order to prepare his body for long-term burial. They weren't expecting to find an empty tomb. They weren't expecting to look for the risen Jesus. And so the angel says to them in Mark 16, 6, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. 
but he isn't here. He is risen from the dead. You see, the end of the story is different. There's always reason for hope. Despair is always a lie because if God is in control and you have turned your life over to him, the end of the story hasn't been written yet. And so the challenge is to let Jesus write the rest of your story because it's not an automatic thing that things are going to turn out well. It's as you join your story to the story of Jesus that you get to anticipate new life, resurrection, and a good ending to the rest of the story. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Corinth as he wraps up his discussion of the elements of the gospel. He says, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is an important uh, conclusion to remember that things in this world are really not always going to end well. Sometimes the end of a person's life, the end of their story here and now does not end well. Sometimes it seems like cancer wins. Sometimes it seems like that uh, people die without ever having had the opportunity to redeem and rescue some relationships. But here in this passage and with this verse, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that ultimately everything ends in death, but the victory comes after. That's not the end of the story. He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And just like you see in Jesus' story, everything going downhill, off track, right to and including death, a tortuous death on the cross. But even then, the end of the story hasn't been written yet. And so if you want God to write the rest of your story, what you're in essence doing is turning over not just this life, but this, the life past this life over to him. Because the end of the story is really the, that, the coda to this life here on earth. And the end of the story hasn't been written yet. But we know how it ends. You see, because in the book of Revelation, it tells us how the story ends. And although our story and the end of the story hasn't been written yet, we get to choose which end we will participate in. And there are two options that are laid out. It's in Revelations chapter 21, verses 6 to 8. And uh, it's quoting Jesus, and he uses this very picturesque language. He says, from water of life well, a well of living water, I give freely to the thirsty. Conquerors inherit all this. I will be God to them. They will be sons and daughters to me. He says, Here, here's the end of the story that I'm offering you. Come and drink freely from water of life well. Have living water. Drink freely from it. Let me write the end of your story. And that ends well. But he also gives the contrast that there are two possible ends. But for the rest, the feckless and faithless, 
degenerates and murderers, sex peddlers and sorcerers, idolaters and all liars. For them, it's lake, fire, and brimstone, second death. So if you ever wondered where fire and brimstone came from, this is where it came from. And now I guess you can call me a fire and brimstone preacher because I've referenced this verse, but I kind of think I'm in good company since I'm quoting Jesus' words right here. And of course, we don't emphasize that. And Jesus doesn't want that for anyone, but for all of us. Have another translation for feckless is cowardly. Have you ever been cowardly? Have you ever been faithless? Have you ever lied? I've done all of those things. And so we deserve the second death, the eternal death. But God did not want that for us. And so he sent his son to make a way for us to end up at the well of living water. Living water. And this is the end that I hope for that he hopes for us that we secure as we come to Jesus. In Revelation 21, 4, one of my favorite verses, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. He's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things has passed away. See, whatever you're facing right now, the story of the resurrection should give you hope because the end of the story hasn't been written yet. He is able to turn things around. All things are possible. Now, we don't always see the ending perhaps that we hope for, but we can secure the ending that he gives to us freely as a gift. And so the challenge is to let Jesus write the rest of your story. How do you do that? In the same way that Jesus, facing the cross, praying under that soul-crushing grief, said to the Father, Dad, if there's a way, and you, if all, you, you, you are the God of the impossible, if there's any way that you can make it so I don't have to suffer this, please do it. But not my will, but yours be done. I want what you want more than what I want. What you're doing is you're turning over, you're surrendering your life to the Lord. You're committing your life to him. And so that's how we do that. We say yes to Jesus. And when we say yes, we are submitting to his kingship. We are saying, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to do things your way. And we're also submitting and appropriating what he did on the cross to us. We're saying, yes, I want what you did on the cross to count for me. I want my sins forgiven. I want my uh, transgressions to be counted, not counted against me. And so say yes to Jesus. Turn your life over to him. He is the king who secures victory through the cross. And whatever you're facing right now, whatever difficulty, whatever challenge, whatever pain, whatever betrayals, or uh, challenges that you're facing, the end of the story hasn't been written yet. And he has given you the opportunity to let him write the rest of your story. And when he does, you will see that he will accomplish his good purposes for you, that he will join your story to his so that it ends in resurrection, new life, living water, 
and the wiping of every last tear from your eyes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have because when things looked their bleakest, you were still at work. When everything was against Jesus, you were for him. When he was dead and buried, you gave him resurrection life and then turned around and offered to include us in his story. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to be a part of your family, to be citizens in your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that you have offered to us forgiveness for every sin that we ever commit, past, present, and future. That as we join our story to yours, that you will work in and through us and that there will be a day as we drink from the well of living water that you will wipe every last tear from our eyes. We thank you for this. We surrender our lives to you. We ask you to lead and guide us. We want to bring you glory and honor as you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.